Good morning, everyone. Well, today's readings are two of them, and they come from Genesis. First one is chapter 29, verses 14b to verse 35, going on to chapter 30, verses 22 to 24. And they can be found in the Church Bibles on page 31 and 33. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your youngest daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the youngest daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons, so he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord, so she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Now we read from 30, 22 and 24. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her, enabled her to conceive, She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, 
May the Lord add to me another son. Shall we pray? Father, thank you that you speak to us in your word what we need to hear. We confess this is a, a difficult and strange word for us. We pray, will you speak and give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You wouldn't believe it if you read it in the tabloids, would you? It, I don't know what words sort of springs to mind as you read this story of uh, Jacob's weddings, two in a week. But sordid is the word that comes to mind for me. There are a bunch of things in it that make you think this is really not terribly savoury. This isn't kind of what you want your heroes uh, to be like. Um, we're reading somewhere between 7 and 14 years worth of, of information here in uh, Genesis 29, starting at verse uh, 14 through to uh, verse uh, 30. But even in those seven or eight paragraphs, 300 or so words, there's quite a lot of detail. It's fascinating what the writer, in his divinely inspired wisdom, chose to note for us. Fascinating. Verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the oldest was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, isn't that extraordinary that we should be given that piece of information right up front? Um, When we're told that Leah had weak eyes, I think it's almost like a pun. She wasn't much of a looker. That's why it's contrasted with Rachel is not only attractive, she doesn't only have a beautiful face, but she's desirable sexually. That's what the writer's telling us. And Jacob is drawn right in. So that at the end of his seven years working for Laban... This is what he says, verse 20, verse 21, sorry. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to make love to her. I mean, who speaks to the father of the bride like that? It would be shocking now. Imagine. Imagine. You know, the rabbis writing about this passage had to try and find ways to sort of explain it away, to sort of try and soften it. But there's no softening it. Jacob's full of lust. To put it politely, we might say that his heart is led by his eyes. Rachel is very, very attractive. And he is just desperate to get her into bed. To the extent that he's already let Laban get one over on him, Laban says, oh, you're my kin, you shouldn't work for nothing. What shall I pay you? And Jacob says, if you'll give me Rachel... I'll work seven years for you. Now, if you're aware of what the sort of general price for labor was in those days and what the standard bride price was, that, uh, like a dowry, I suppose, that a, that a husband would pay to a uh, uh, father of the bride, Jacob has just offered a, an absolutely astronomical bride price. In terms of the value of his labor, He is saying to Laban, I will pay you a ridiculous sum. 
Laban's already doing pretty well out of the deal, but Laban's not done, is he? He throws a great wedding feast. So the wedding celebrations take a full week. Uh, and on the first day, there's this incredible feast. And then in the sort of, you know, the, the haze of, of the drinking and uh, the darkness of the night and the heavily veiled bride. Laban pulls a bait and switch. There's enormous economy, isn't there, in the way the writer says, in the morning, there was Leah. And you can just imagine the look on Jacob's face, can't you? You can certainly imagine the look on his face when he goes to his new father-in-law and says, what is this you have done to me? That's verse 25. I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Now, Laban could easily have said to him, well, did I deceive you? Let's just, let's just rewind the tape. What happened when you told me you would work seven years for, for my younger daughter, Rachel? I said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man stay here with me. I never said yes, did I? You've been had, son. Jacob says, why have you deceived me? And notice what Laban says. All this detail, all this detail, it all matters. Look at what Laban says. It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. And if you've been coming on Sunday mornings and they're listening carefully, then all of a sudden you may be having a bit of an aha moment. Because <clears throat> Jacob was the younger son. The younger son of Isaac. His older brother Esau should, under normal circumstances, have received Isaac's blessing. Now, what that means, we just have to rewind a little bit further. God made a promise to a, a man called Abraham that from him... He would bring about the salvation of the whole world. He would turn everything back the right way up again. He would get rid of death and misery and pain and alienation. Through a promised son given to Abraham and through promised sons given to that son. And Jacob thinks, I want to be that promise. I want that promise for myself. And so he tricks his father into giving him the blessing that should have gone to the older son. And how does he do it? Well, he goes into his father's dark tent and his father has failing eyesight. And he dresses up in a disguise in order to persuade his father that he's really his brother. Uh, and when his father says, is that you, my son, Esau? Jacob says, yes. And as Laban says to Jacob... It's not really our custom to put the younger before the older. The lights come on, don't they? Because what has just happened? In the dark, in disguise, for Jacob, the older has been substituted for the younger. He's married the older sister, even though he had no intention of doing so. He's been tricked 
in exactly the same way that he was tricked. So that one medieval rabbi, uh, writing about this uh, passage, uh, imagines the conversation between Jacob and Leah the next morning. When Jacob says to Leah, when I called out to you, Rachel, and you said yes, why did you do that? She says, but isn't that exactly what you did to your father, Isaac? Now, so what? Well, there's a few things. This tells us something about the kind of text that we're dealing with. What the Bible really is, is not what we imagine it to be. It tells us something about who God is and how he works. It tells us something about Jacob and, uh, and what's going on in his life. And then sets the scene for what is to follow. So what does this show us? about the Bible. Well, I think, and this has often been the way that particularly the Old Testament of the Bible has been treated in in, in Sunday schools and in churches, I think that we often think of the Bible as like a book of examples, uh, as a book of stories to imitate, because that's what religious texts are supposed to be like. You know, if you've read the Greek myths, you know. They're supposed to be sort of morality tales. You're supposed to have heroes that you can copy. And you sort of think, well, if I could be like one of the heroes from the Bible, then maybe, maybe God would love me. But that's not it at all, is it? Jacob's not a hero. He's a randy young man. A deceiver. He's on the run from his family. His brother wants to kill him. So deep is his treachery. This is not a morality tale, at least not in the way that we normally think of them. There's no hero here. Jacob and Laban are both appalling. And Jacob may have got what he deserves, but that doesn't make what Laban did right. If you read this passage looking for heroes, you're going to look for a long time. And yet there is a hero hidden in the background, and it is God. Because somehow, in the midst of all of this chaos, God is at work. And you see it in the sort of poetic, ironic justice that Jacob faces. He has fled from Esau. He has fled the scene of the crime. He has stolen his brother's birthright. But it sort of looks like he's got away with it. His father has blessed him. He's uh, sent him off to uh, Laban, to Paddan Aram, and said, go there and find a wife from Laban's family. That's part of the blessing. From that, there will be huge blessing for the whole world, says Isaac at the beginning of chapter 28. It looks so much like he's got away with it, doesn't it? And yet, his sin and his treachery follow him. Can you imagine what must have gone on in his heart when Laban said to him, well, round here, that's not how we do things. We don't put the younger before the older. God is at work in Jacob to show Jacob what is wrong and in the end to lead Jacob home. God is working quietly in the background, even through the treachery, the deceit, the terrible motives of the people in the story. And actually that's true of the whole Bible. 
is this is a book in which you see the hand of God quietly moving through the wickedness of humanity to save those human beings. It comes to its absolute climax, doesn't it, in the cross, when the Son of God himself is laid out before everyone, covered in shame, bleeding to death because of the wicked, deceitful, treacherous acts of wicked, deceitful, treacherous people. And yet in that moment, God is reconciling the world to himself and reconciling human beings to each other. That's the story that's weaving its way through the whole Bible. You must look for the hand of God as you read these pages. And so often it's in the the sort of unexpected detail that you see it. So God is at work to bring his promise about, even as people are doing their worst. Uh, And so we end this first section at verse 30 with Jacob having two weddings in a week and with absolute chaos to follow. Because one of his wives, who maybe thought she would never get married because she was not comely, has kind of got her dream of being married, but she is in absolute agony because her husband doesn't love her. And what a thing it is to find yourself in a loveless marriage. But then we'll see that her sister Rachel, the Instagram-ready sister, the loved wife, is in agony too. Because at the beginning of chapter 30, verse 1, she, so Leah saw that she was not loved. Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children. She became jealous of her sister, so she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Both these women are in agony, both in some ways because of the behavior of uh, Jacob and Laban. These powerful men have uh, ruined the lives of these women. This is such a real book, isn't it? And you shouldn't think for a moment that the writer of Genesis is going, yeah, you see, polygamy is a great idea. Um, Using servants as surrogates, which is what they do, we didn't read that bit, but which also goes on, that's a great idea. No, 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 it's very clear that it's, that's all ending in chaos, that's disastrous. But we are seeing that even through the failures and the deceits and the mistakes of these people, these very ordinary people experiencing the ordinary pains and griefs of life. Pains and griefs that, if we haven't experienced them ourselves, we've seen those close to us go through. And yet somehow in the middle of all of it, God is doing something extraordinary. And you see that in the story of Leah. Leah sees she's not loved, God sees she's not loved. And... God looks kindly on her and she becomes pregnant. In fact, she gives birth to four sons in a row. She would have been considered in those days very blessed indeed to be producing sons for her husband. That's something we can talk about another time perhaps. But with each of her first three sons, you see this kind of plaintive quality to the naming. She gives them names which are a kind of pun. 
It's a bit like the thing you sometimes see people doing by saying, oh, you know what that word really means? And, and then they sort of spell, out, spell it out and spell out the sounds and say, you know, so um, I remember watching a film and, I, and as someone who's interested in language, I kind of got really upset about it. But actually, there's, there's a point to it. So they said, oh, the word intimacy. It means into me see. It means that you have access to the deepest things about me. Now, that is not where the word intimacy comes from at all. It's nonsense. And yet it does kind of explain what the word means in some ways, doesn't it? That it's about kind of closeness. It's about kind of your inner self being revealed. Well, that's what uh, Leah is doing in naming her sons. Reuben, she says, the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. Because you see, Reuben sounds a bit like the word for see, although it's got nothing to do with it. So the Lord has seen. Then again, she says, uh, when she names Simeon, the Lord has heard that I'm not loved. And, and each time she says, maybe my husband will love me now. She gave birth to a son and said, now at last my husband will become attached because I've borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. Surely my husband will love me now. It's a forlorn hope. But every time she's hoping, if I just have a son, my husband will love me. If I can just do this, then I will get what I say deeply need, which is the love and approval of my husband. But hidden in here, there is a clue to what's going on in Leah's heart. Uh, and uh, it is the name that she uses for God. She doesn't use the normal word for God, which is Elohim. She uses the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh. That's why it says Lord uh, in uh, small capitals in, in your text. That's the way that the personal name of God is translated in English Bibles. She is looking to the God of the covenant, the God who made the promise to Abraham. And she is saying he is the one who's somehow at work in all of this. And so, fourth son... Verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. The point, I think, is she stopped trying to have sons to make her husband love her. She's realized that the only person who can satisfy her is God himself. Finally, she says, I will praise the Lord. That is where true fulfillment, true joy, true peace Lies. She has stopped chasing something in her life that will fix everything. She's trusting God and his promise. And and in that moment, you see, when she says, I will praise the Lord and cause her son Judah, onto the stage of the world breaks the one who will in the end, be the cause of salvation for all of us. You get a clue uh, about uh, why that is the case if you uh, flick on to uh, Ruth chapter 4. In the book of Ruth in our Bibles, which happens centuries after this, um, it's a beautiful story. We're actually going to be looking at it together uh, in, in, in church in, later on in the new year. Uh, but um, you, you have this, this childless widow, uh, Ruth, who uh, experiences a complete turnaround in her uh, life. And um, she's redeemed by this chap called Boaz. And um, 
there's just great joy about it in the community. And notice which community it is. This may give you a clue. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. Judah. This baby we've just heard about. Now, if you want to learn about Tamar and Perez, that's a story that's even more sordid than the one we're looking at. I mean, she dressed up as a prostitute in order to entrap her father-in-law. I mean, you're really going, son. And yet, through that, the son is born to Judah. And where is his family established? Uh, And where is it that uh, Ruth is told, may your children be like those who came from Rachel and Leah? These two stories being woven together. Where was it? Bethlehem. Because Jesus was born, as all our Christmas readings tell us, in the line of Judah. And in the midst of all of this mess, as God is working out his plan and keeping his promise, Leah, who herself finds some eventual solace in love and worship of God rather than seeking the things of this world, she gives birth to Judah, whose offspring will be our saviour, Jesus Christ. One other thing, quickly, just to notice as we finish, is what we're told in the prophets before Jesus comes uh, about him, this one from Judah. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Jesus had things in common with his great, 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 great grandmother. According to Isaiah, chapter 53. Nothing in his appearance that we should consider him attractive. You see, there's something about the way God chooses to work. That he chooses to set his love on those who would otherwise be ignored, rejected, despised. He takes the ugly duckling sister. And through her chooses to bless the world. His own son comes into the world and is despised and rejected. And yet through his being despised and being rejected, he brings salvation to everyone. Here I think is the point. This is the point that comes through the kind of book that the Bible is, the way that God is working in all of these people. Uh, And uh, this thing of Leah being the unwanted sister. It is this. God loves you. Because God loves you. Not because you've got something to give him. Not because somehow you deserve it or are good enough or uh, somehow you're, you, you, know, you have to find a way to be extra special. Like Leah trying to win Jacob's love by providing him with sons. That's not how God works. So he provides not by being given sons but by giving his son. He loves you in all the ugliness that's there right at the depth of your heart. But through sending Jesus, 
he loves you like Jacob loved Rachel. That's the extraordinary thing. With the same passion that he was willing to pay an exorbitant price to have you. Jacob gave seven, then another seven years of his life. Jesus gave his whole life. And in a few moments as we gather around the table, that's what we remember, isn't it? This table speaks to us of this story, of the God who loves you so much that he held nothing back.